Welcome to our Voices of Africa podcast, brought to you by Africa Practice, a strategic advisory firm supplying insights and advocacy solutions to corporations, investors, governments, and foundations in Africa. In a world with complex and interdependent challenges, we take the guesswork out of business engagement. We enable our clients to see more clearly in order to drive sustainable and equitable development. Hello and welcome to this edition of Voices of Africa. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Charles Morito. Charles is the Regional Director for Google, responsible for government affairs and public policy in Sub-Saharan Africa. Charles has spent nearly two decades working with some of the world's leading tech, media and entertainment companies to define their strategy and grow their footprint and their business in Africa, but not exclusively. You've worked, I know, Charles, across the EMEA region. You've worked at NTV, where I think I first met you almost 20 years ago. You've worked at NTV, you were at Warner Brothers, you were at Turner Broadcasting, and now you're at Google. You've been responsible for launching new channels. I think you've done work with animators, a lot of work in building a tech media and entertainment ecosystem throughout the continent. I'm so thrilled to be able to speak to you today. And forgive me, I'm speaking to you from a hotel in Joburg. I arrived very early in the morning on a flight from West Africa. You, I think, are in Nairobi, where you're based. Hi, Charles. Hey, Marcus. Fantastic to see you. It's been a while since we last saw each other. It has been a while. So I know a little bit about you, or quite a lot about you, but for the benefit of our audience, Tell us where you grew up, what you studied, why you chose to pursue the career that you've pursued, and the role that you currently fulfill at Google. Thanks for the question. I always find that question very important because one of the things which I'm really thinking about right now in my life is this notion of how do you inspire younger uh, or the next generation of people growing up to aspire to greater things. And I think that I've been incredibly lucky in my career to get to the place that I am today. But it, it's not something that I always thought that my path would be charted in the direction that it has and the path that it's taken over the last 25 or so years. So I was born in Nairobi, in Kenya, and I grew up on the outskirts of Nairobi in uh, Limuru, in a place called Riara region, Tigoni. And as part of that, I, I used to commute back and forth to Nairobi for primary school. And at some point, I actually went to boarding school before high school, where I was a day scholar. And after high school, I went to California, where I did my undergraduate degree, initially studying architecture. So I did architecture for two years. And at some point, with the Kenyan economy crashing, my parents couldn't afford to pay for my university fees. And I was lucky enough to have the president of the school give me a small grant. As an international student, you're not eligible for grants in the US, unlike most people say. And the rest of it, I was incredibly lucky that they gave me a, a, an interest-free loan to actually finish my university studies, which I then paid off post-university. And... After university, I started uh, working at Warner Brothers, where I started out in a global management training program. And I spent seven years 
at Warner Brothers before moving to the UK and had a short stint at MTV, which is the time that I met you. And then continued back at Warner Brothers and transitioned to Time Warner uh, to Turner Broadcasting, where I spent another eight or so years before moving back to Kenya. And in Kenya, I got the role as the country lead for Google in Kenya. And more recently, over the last two and a half years, have uh, transitioned into what arguably was not in my career path, or at least what I thought would be my career path which is to lead the government affairs and public policy team at Google in Africa, which has really been a delight. For me, one of the things that I find so impactful about this particular role is the notion that we get to work with policymakers to think about what does the next 20, 30 years look like in Africa, especially for the youth. And I'm happy to touch on some of the data points that really excite me, give me hope, but also make me really focused on ensuring that as a business, as Google, and as a community, because Google can't do it alone, we can be able to uplift the youth and help them have opportunities in terms of the future. Well, thank you, Charles. Well, we've touched on a, a huge subject already, youth unemployment. It's a wicked challenge for most African nations at the moment. Too many graduates coming out of school and insufficient work for them. I wonder if we could stay on that subject. You referenced the work that you're doing in looking to the future. And how do you see the future of youth unemployment and the application specifically of technology, I suppose, in addressing the unemployment challenge? I go back to a couple of data points. I love statistics. And so for me, I like to anchor my theories into some of those things. And I'll just sort of give you a couple of those points. The first one is that by 2050, more than a third of the world's workforce is going to be based in Africa. We also know that Africa has one of the largest youth populations in the world. By 2050, 25% of the world's population are going to be Africans. By the turn of the century, one in two people in the world are going to be Africans. The way I think about it is that Africa's fortune or misfortune is the world's fortune or misfortune. We are going to be providing the workforce for the world right here on the continent. And it therefore behooves us to really focus on thinking how do we equip African youth and also reskill the current population to be able to leverage the opportunities that the digital ecosystem, and when you think about the fourth industrial revolution, what that opportunity looks like. Two years ago, we as Google partnered with Accenture and worked on a paper called the Africa Economy Report in 2020. And this report illustrated that over the next three, now three years, by 2025, Africa stands to gain $180 billion in IGDP contribution to the economy, which is about three and a half percent of the GDP contribution from the internet economy. So that is something that's really massive. And so as we're thinking about the future, as we're thinking about youth unemployment, we really have to tie that component of digitalization to the way that we do work. 
And digital and technology cannot be something that sits alongside the rest of the economy, but it needs to be fully infused into everything that we do. So when you think about technology, agriculture needs to infuse technology in the way we farm, the way we provide food, the way we feed the continent. When you think about health, we need to start infusing technology into health tech so that people in remote parts of the continent can still be able to access that health. When you think about education, which I, I will dwell on a little bit, we need to infuse both technology and the ability to learn into that. And giving a couple of more data points, last year, we conducted a study of how many developers are in Africa, certified software developers. And we found that at the turn of 2021, there were 720,000 developers on the continent, most of them being in South Africa, Egypt, Kenya, and Nigeria. But what's interesting, anchoring back to the third of the world's workforce in Africa, is that 38% of the current certified developers on the continent are working on projects and for companies outside Africa. So that actually anchors the point that as we think about youth unemployment, we need to prepare our youth to be able to understand what opportunities are there and how can they leverage the opportunities that are there in the rest of the world and do those jobs right from here on the continent. And if you may indulge me for a moment, I want to give you a framework that we've been working on at Google. It's called the Digital Sprinters Report. And this framework looks at how do you accelerate economic growth over the next few years, but anchoring it on digital transformation. And there are four key pillars that go under the Digital Sprinters Report. The first one is around physical and infrastructure investments. We call it physical capital. The second pillar of the framework is skills development, human capital. The third pillar is around competitiveness. So policymaking, how do we have forward-looking policies that can enable digital transformation? And then last but not least is the adoption and encouraging adoption of technology. That means how do you infuse technology into e-governance and things like that? But I'm happy to delve a little bit deeper on that um, as you please. Great. Well, I think you've given us our structure for a conversation. Physical skills development, competitiveness, adoption. I know because my team have been privileged to be supporting you in, in elements of your work here around the uh, massive investment that you've made in laying the Equiano undersea cable. Tell us a little bit about that infrastructure investment and why it's so important. That, that's a great question. And, and for me... I think about it in two ways. The first one is what is required to enable and connect the continent? And then two, once the skills come in, once the connectivity is there, the skills enable people to actually earn a living. So on the point around Equiano, Equiano is our subsea cable that connects Europe all the way to South Africa, Cape Town, and it runs alongside the West Coast of Africa. The importance of this is that Equiano as a subsea cable is going to have about 40 times the capacity of the current cables that are on the west coast of Africa. 
But more importantly, it provides redundancy for other cables that are there. So it's important for us to know that if one cable is cut, there's a way to actually connect and get the internet connectivity flowing. Uh, I know that last year, early, uh, sorry, not last year, 2020, um, the works cable had been cut and there was a, a lapse in connectivity to South Africa and West Coast of Africa for a couple of weeks. So we want to ensure that there is redundancy that can be able to help when such things happen. And on Equiano specifically, we are currently landing in four different countries. We've already landed in Togo. We've landed just about a week and a half ago in Nigeria, in Lagos. We are now looking at Namibia and eventually we'll be landing in Cape Town later on in the next few weeks. And that's important because it enables the reduction of latency. That's the amount of time it takes for data to go from one point to another. And it simplifies the access and connectivity. Just to put it in a very sort of simple example, when you log into a YouTube channel and you want to watch a particular video, when you click on play, the latency can either increase or reduce the, uh, the speed at which that video loads. And that's important even for the end user because the longer it takes, the more data is utilized, the more expensive it is. So we want to reduce that latency so that it's also cheaper for the end consumer to access the internet. So that's something that's important. Thank you, Charles. It's a really significant investment that you're making through the undersea cable, the Equiano cable. You touched on skills development. I'd like you, if you may, just to elaborate on what you're doing to build, build skills, particularly, I think, in software development and coding. You've got a big initiative in that area, and um, you referred us earlier to the opportunities that Africans with the right skills in this area will be able to apply to jobs globally in the global economy. That's a very exciting prospect. Can you tell us about your work in developing that ecosystem? On the skills development, we look at it at three different layers. The first one goes back to 2017, when Sunda Pichai, our CEO in Nigeria, announced that over a five-year period, we're going to be investing to train 10 million Africans in digital skills. And that was at a high level for Africans to understand basic digital literacy so that they can understand what are the opportunities online, what can you do, and how can you be able to really leverage the internet to help you or your business grow. And we targeted three key areas. One, job seekers who are trying to upskill themselves. The second piece was around uh, small and medium-sized businesses who are trying to see how do they get their businesses online, how do they reach new customers. And last but not least were school leavers who are going to really be getting into the, the workforce so that they also understand how to both grow within their careers and to get jobs. So that's the first piece of the 10 million jobs. And I'm proud to say that we've trained over six and a half million Africans on this, and we continue to work with different organizations to help grow that piece. The second piece around digital skills training is that we also announced that we're going to train and certify over 100,000 
Africans on developer skills. And that is something that we've been working on. As of the last couple of months, we've trained over 80,000 developers. And as of last month in May, we had made a call out for the next batch of 30,000 certifications that we're going to be training. And this is important because what it does is it enables more Africans to have the requisite skills to take advantage, to help drive that digital transformation. And I'll give you a very practical example of why this matters. For a CEO who runs a bank, the number of developers in Africa is something that they should care about. For someone who runs an automobile business, they should care about how many developers are in Africa. You may ask why. The reason is that all of these businesses are going through a digital transformation, but the people who end up building the foundational software that's required to help these businesses become digitally ready are the developers. So we've been working to ensure that we grow that skill set and we enable more and more businesses to have access to that. And that's an area that's really important. Um, and then the last piece around skills development that we're looking at is how do we work closely with TVETs to inculcate digital skills and software development in those technical and vocational training institutes. We've already started a pilot in Kenya where we're working with the Ministry of Education and we're running a pilot there together with the Ministry of Education. And in the next few weeks, we're going to be graduating our first batch. And what we did with the Ministry of Education is train the trainers so they can then train the students, which then makes that system sustainable. And we hope that that can be scaled beyond the, the country of Kenya. Oh, thanks, Charles, for those insights. Let's turn, if we may, because you brought it up, to competitiveness. You're the policy lead for Google in Sub-Saharan Africa. You spend a lot of your time engaging with policymakers and regulatory institutions to try to encourage and shape the appropriate legislation and regulation that can help to enable the digital economy to take off on the continent. Can you tell us a little bit more about the sort of principles and the approach that you take to working with authorities to develop quality, sustainable and appropriate policies that can really catalyze growth in the digital economy. You referred us a little bit earlier to the work that you've done with Essentia and sort of scenario planning, I suppose it is, um, looking at what the potential is for the digital economy. I wonder how much evidence basis is a sort of tool in your armory as you engage with governments. And how much of your time you spend really thinking about the future and trying to educate all of your stakeholders, really, about the potential, the value at stake for African economies from addressing the opportunity with confidence and just how challenging that is? It's a big question. Sorry, a big question. A really critical one. Yeah. Let me step back by saying that we've seen some really progressive policies around tech on the continent and some not so progressive. And just touching on perhaps the best known example is M-Pesa on the continent. The reason M-Pesa took off the way it did was because there were no 
stringent guardrails that stifled innovation. And so going to your point about what are the principles that I approach and we approach as Google in terms of working closely with policymakers on the continent is really thinking through and driving it or anchoring it on one basic premise, creating progressive forward-looking policies that are going to encourage digital transformation in order to accelerate economic growth for citizens in Africa. And the way I put it very simply is that Google cannot thrive on the continent if the continent does not thrive. We and our fate in Africa is very closely tied to the fate of the communities that we work in. So we care and we want to ensure that the policies that are coming up are really embedded in the best interest of Africans at large. And that's really the fundamental premise that I engage with policymakers on the continent. It's a fantastic point where we are now to really think through what the policies that are built today, the impact they're going to have over the next 20, 30 years when it comes to the continent digital transformation and the opportunities that we can help accelerate economic growth because we must create jobs for the youth that are coming up and that are being born. And I want to give a couple of examples. We do have the African Continental Free Trade Agreement that currently is in negotiation. There's the digital protocol that's currently being discussed. We hope that by early next year, that will be in place. And so we're working closely, both as Google, as well as an industry, to really engage with governments, with the secretariat, to look at what are some of the key fundamental foundations that we need to input into that. Starting with things like cross-border data flows, and I'll give the example of why that matters. We need to really think through how does data flow from one country to another in a regulated manner, but that enables the growth of the companies that need that. And I'll give some very tangible examples. We both have credit cards in our pockets. If you have stringent data localization rules and that curb cross-border data flows, a credit card issued in Kabarone in Botswana cannot be used in Kenya when you travel to Kenya because that data, there's data that has to flow on a trans-border basis. I'll give another example. Take an example of a company like Flutterwave, which just raised $250 million earlier this year, $3 billion valuation. That's a company that has been built in Nigeria, but it's a company that then grows beyond the borders of Nigeria. The reason you're getting that size of valuation is because the investors see the opportunity across the continent. If you were to restrict Flutterwave to only work in Nigeria, there's a cap in terms of how much you can scale that business. And in turn, that caps the level of investments that you can be able to fundraise and bring it to the, both the Nigerian economy as well as the broader African economy. And a lot of the money that comes is actually foreign money that's being invested in this. Another example is a company like Twiga in Kenya or Pineapple Insurance, a fintech in South Africa. All of these companies are able to raise the 
money and the funding that they can because investors see the opportunity beyond their shores. So that's just one example. We also have other policies, for instance, the legislation around over-the-top players like YouTube. You cannot take the same traditional licensing modules that you would take whether it comes to classified content on a traditional broadcaster, an area that I know very well, having come from that world, and apply the same to YouTube. Because when you take YouTube, it's user-generated content. Also, the sheer scale of content that's being uploaded on YouTube at the last publicly noted number is 500 hours of content is uploaded on YouTube every single minute. You cannot physically be able to rate every single piece of content that's on YouTube. But what we do is ensure that the content that's online, that's on YouTube, goes through very rigorous terms and conditions and community guidelines. We have flagging systems, etc., which helps regulate the way YouTube works and make sure that it's safe for the users because we care about the users and we want trust. So those are just two examples around policy that are critical, that we work very closely with policymakers. And we work both at a pan-African level as well as at a, a country level to ensure that the laws that are coming up to regulate the internet are laws that can go cross-border because the internet is not restricted to any one singular jurisdiction. Thank you, Charles. That's really insightful to hear. I want to talk a little bit more about that, the important policy and, and regulatory space. You talked about at a pan-continental level and then a national level. What's your sense of how this policy and, dare I say, leadership landscape is evolving? Is there more collaboration, cooperation? Do the mechanisms and fora exist for technology companies such as you to engage? Are you getting the reception that you might expect? Is there a genuine intent on the part of both the regulators and industry to work together, to collaborate, to share information, to exchange, and to address what are, frankly, deep philosophical issues with political consequences and consequences that will affect power, will affect liberty, will affect democracy, will affect social justice. We're all seeing that the pace in terms of the evolution of technology, in particular, I think it's been very topical of late, you know, focused artificial intelligence systems. It begs the question whether our regulators in Africa are really equipped with the evidence basis and the intellectual apparatus to make sense of these technologies and understand their implications for governance and how our societies work on the continent for the next generation. It's a big question, I appreciate, but I'm, I'm really just trying to get a feel for, for your role, actually, and, and how you divide your time between engaging with Pan-African institutions and the sort of reception that you're receiving when you talk to regulators? We work very closely with various policymakers to really, one, understand what are the implications of the technology that's coming up, both what we know and what's going to come, some that we don't know yet. And really how we think about it is making sure that we have and, and we want to ensure that there's guardrails that within those guardrails, there's flexibility to innovate. 
because that's really fundamental to anything that we do as a technology company and as society, we need to be able to create the space and the bandwidth for innovation. And that innovation is what's going to help economies to grow, jobs to be created, and really prepare the next generation for what the world is going to pause. And as we always say, is that a lot of the jobs that are going to be there in the next 40, 50 years, many of them are jobs that don't exist today. So we need to create and be nimble enough to really adapt quickly as things are changing. And the way that I think about it is that the African policymakers are well-equipped either with what they have now or what they're learning as things change, because we're all learning, even not just in Africa, but across the world. There are significant issues that we're trying to tackle. But it's important for us to really keep an open mind between industry as well as policymakers. And dare I say, other constituents who really matter are academia, think tanks and non-governmental organizations. And what I have seen is that there's genuine intent to work closely together to have the best skill sets that are developed. For instance, at Google, we work closely to run what we call the Africa Internet Academy, which focuses around data privacy. And we run this once a year. And this is a workshopping type event whereby we share knowledge, we listen to academia, we also bring our knowledge and expertise and really collaboratively work to equip the policymakers. Um, just a few weeks back, we were working closely in Nigeria with some of the policymakers on how OTTs and other over-the-top networks such as YouTube impact society and content creation. As you know, Nigeria really relies on content creation as, as a core part of the economy. So there's always that openness and sharing. And where there may be challenges, what we do is really show our hand that we are interested, genuinely interested in the growth of the economy and the work that we do is not one-sided. It really has to be for the shared good of society. And as you know, even more recently, as Google, one of the things that we do is really look at what is that intersection of how society and technology intersect to really think through how the future comes together. Charles, I know that Google's launched an Africa investment fund focused on supplying early and growth stage African startups with funding it's a big commitment. You've committed to a billion dollars over the next five years to support businesses on the continent. Tell us about that ambition and how it's going. That's a fantastic question. I think it's best to frame it under the billion dollars that we announced last October um, through our CEO as part of our Google for Africa initiative. And this billion dollar investment is focused on four key areas. The first one is around enabling access and building products that work for every kind of African user, whether you are 
thinking about someone who trades in a market or is a student or is a small and medium-sized business owner, access and affordable access to digital and to the internet is something that's really important. And then the products that we build need to be products that actually work on the continent as well for those users. The second piece of investment, helping African businesses go through their digital transformation journey. And that looks at different areas such as the skill sets to help those businesses, thinking through small and medium-sized businesses, for instance, have told us some of the need states of what they require. Some of that includes access to funding, access to markets, as well as just the ability to have their businesses online. So we are creating products such as Market Finder, which enable businesses to easily put their small and medium-sized business online so that customers can be able to find those businesses. The third pillar of the billion dollars investment is really looking at how do we invest in African entrepreneurs that are going to help spur the next generation of technologies. And that's where the Africa Investment Fund sort of fits in. Let me touch on the fourth and then I'll go back to the, the fund itself. And then the fourth pillar is around supporting nonprofits that are working across the continent. On this piece, we renewed our commitment with a $40 million fund for nonprofits that are going to really be looking at how do we help more nonprofits work across the continent, especially in areas that are focused on, on technology and digital skills. So coming back to the Africa Investment Fund, this is a $50 million fund that really looks at how do we invest at an equity basis on startups and other businesses on the continent that are technology enabled. And on this particular fund, we've already made some investments and announced those, um, such as Carry First, as well as Safe Border. Safe Border, as you know, is a Ugandan logistics company. And we're going to continue looking at pipeline of such companies whereby we can enable them to accelerate their growth. But I also want to touch on two other funds that we've also invested in and are built around this. The, the, the other one is the Black Founders Fund. Last year, we committed $3 million to equity-free funding for startups that are started by Black founders on the continent. And one of the things that we saw during various forms of research is that startups that are founded by Black founders, as well as female funders, have a more difficult time accessing funding. So we wanted to fill this gap. The first one, we had 50 companies go through that and they received anywhere between 50 and $200,000. And that really enabled them to accelerate their growth. And through the first cohort, the startups actually managed to raise an additional $73 million in funding as a result of that. And just a few weeks back, we announced that we're renewing that and did a $4 million renewal of the Black Founders Fund. And we're currently going through the applicants of that. And then last but not least is what we call the Black Creators Fund. This is targeting specifically Black YouTube creators on the continent 
to enable them really retool and reskill and buy the, the equipment that they require to enable them create better content that can be posted on YouTube and that can help them earn a living on YouTube. And that has been open to creators from a few countries, Kenya, Nigeria, and South Africa. So those are the various funds out of the billion-dollar investment that we announced last year. Some really interesting initiatives. I'm particularly uh, interested in the work that you're doing with, with not-profit. I wasn't aware of that. So I'll be interested to read some more about that. Thank you, Charles, for that. Our own observation is that there are so many NGOs, civil society groups who are doing really fantastic work at the vanguard of, of development and building markets, actually, um, in, in our societies, particularly in rural areas. And very often their work and their contribution is not known or understood. And so bringing visibility, supporting them with access to capital and helping build capability and the great work that they do, I think, can genuinely be transformative in, in, in lots of areas. I wanted to talk to you about climate and the environment. Africa, later this year, in November, will host the next UNFCCC conference of parties in, in Egypt. We know that our continent is most affected by climate change of, of any region in the world. I think we also know, or if we don't know, we're learning our natural capital, our rangelands, our forests, wetlands, our marsh areas, these are going to be critical. They are critical to world's efforts to lower global warming. They sequester carbon and therefore Africa is critical to the battle to address global climate change. As a global big technology company, I wonder if you could tell us a little bit about how you're approaching specifically nature, conservation, and the environment more generally within your African operations? That's a great question, and it's something that we all care about. As Google, sustainability has been something that we've been working on at a global level for at least the last decade or so. We were, in fact, one of the early companies to really focus on purchasing of renewable energy and also investing in renewable energy. Google is one of the investors in one of Africa's largest solar parks in South Africa, Jospers Park. So that is something that we're consistently looking at. And though I cannot divulge all the different initiatives that we're currently working on and planning on the continent, we hope to be able to do that later on this year at COP27. It is something that is core to us. Everything from our data centers to, for instance, at the global level, pixel devices, We've spoken a lot around sustainability and ensuring that we are thoughtful about how we are utilizing global resources and resources that can be renewed. We want to focus more on that. So watch this space, more to come. <laughs> but the one thing that I can assure you is that as Google, we are very committed to sustainability, to climate change. And there are certain things that we're also using our technology to assist when it comes to that. So I'll give you an example. We developed a flood prediction solution that enables different governments and meteorological institutions to really predict up to eight hours before floods happen using our AI modeling to help save lives. And these are the kinds of things that we want to continue working very closely with governments, 
working closely with different institutions to leverage technology to help sustainable goals and environmental solutions that not only save the environment, but also help conserve the human life as well as wildlife. There's an example of an initiative that we did in Kenya with Save the Elephant almost eight years ago. And this was a story that was really well covered with Save the Elephant in the Samburu National Reserve in Kenya. And so we're looking at how does technology be integral? How can technology be integral in conservation efforts as well as environmental solutions? Thanks for that overview, Charles. We're coming to the end, and I traditionally ask our guests what they're reading at the moment, or indeed what they're listening to. Can I put that question to you? What are you reading? There's a couple of books that I absolutely love. One of the ones that perhaps I'm quite enjoying is Effortless. Effortless is by Greg McKeon. And really, it's this notion of how do you do things that are that really mean more to you, that almost become second nature. It's not painful. So it comes with being very deliberate about decision-making and being radical about making choices about what's important. So I'm really enjoying that. Um, but another book that I would love to share is Prosperity Paradox. This is a book that I finished reading about a year ago. And for me, that book is one that really looks at uh, how do you create opportunities by understanding the challenges that are in a market and creating products that solve for that particular need. And I think that it's very, very relevant, especially in the African society, whereby there's so much opportunity, but so much need. How do we develop products and services that really fill those gaps, whether it's access to food, access to water, access to education, financial inclusivity, all of these things are things that we need to solve for. And so those are two books that I'm really enjoying or have enjoyed reading. Oh, thank you, Charles. Well, I'll certainly be picking those up. That was, for the benefit of our audience, that was Effortless and Prosperity Paradox, and we'll include links to those in our show notes. And, and perhaps, if I may, yes. just yes. one last book, which I love. I read this a few years back, and it was literally at the beginning of the covid and as you know, most of us were probably quite in the dumps thinking about how tough the world is. And the book is Factfulness. Ah, and Factfulness is, is for me... my favorite book. Absolutely, because it gives hope. It, it actually shows that when you think about life in a larger continuum, actually the world is not so bad. So it gives us hope that things are actually better today than they have ever been even though there's so many challenges that we have to deal with. But it gives us that hope, and I'm really excited about what the future and how my son will be able to grow in the next 20, 30, 40 years. Me too. Thank you for that upbeat note in which we conclude our questioning. It only leaves me to say, Charles, thank you so much. It's been so nice to reconnect with you. I'm going to make a plan to see you again, I hope, very soon. I am privileged to meet a number of leaders who are transforming our societies and 
unlocking pathways to collective prosperity. There are few organizations, few people who are doing so at such scale and impact as, as you are. It is really impressive to hear the, the magnitude of what you are achieving and the ambition that you have all across the continent. We wish you so well in your ambitions. We invite you to continue to educate us about the value that is at stake for our societies as we look to the future and to help us to advance with confidence into this uncertain world. You're working on so many areas. The infrastructure investments that you're making are very significant and of such magnitude. Skills development, it was really interesting for me to hear about how you're approaching skills development, particularly with coders and developers, but more broadly. And then specifically for someone like me, who's operated at the intersection of markets and the state all of my career, to get a better understanding of how you're approaching competitiveness and working with African policymakers and regulators. And, and great to hear that that work is happening both at a continental level and at a national level. So thank you, Charles. It really has been fantastic to speak with you today. Thank you so much, Marcus, and looking forward to seeing you soon. Thank you for tuning into a Voices of Africa podcast this week. Voices of Africa is a forum where Africa's leading experts weigh in on cross-sectional topics affecting the continent. Experts share their views on how we can unlock greater value that will benefit industry, government, and communities. For more of our insights, visit our website or subscribe to our weekly newsletter, Views on Africa, in the description.